Last night I was at a wedding in downtown Charleston at the French Huguenot Church, and it was a wonderful experience for me for a number of reasons. But one is that uh, the French Huguenot, their heritage is that in 1572, there was a blanket massacre really of, in France of the evangelicals. Almost 30,000 were martyred, were killed on a weekend in August, which caused the church to die that had been birthed really out of the Reformation. Calvin had sent many, many preachers there from Geneva. And so they went all over Europe and many ended up in the U.S. And that's where the Huguenot church came from. And, and so as I'm in this historic setting, understanding the situation that represents the Huguenot church, uh, the bride came down the aisle and bagpipes were playing. And I thought, well, that's the Scott heritage. And the St. Bartholomew's Day was 1572, and John Knox, the great leader of the Scottish Church, died in 1572. So I, just, I kind of had a really fun experience doing that. It was great for me to glory in the goodness of the gospel. But it made me think about weddings. And I, I love weddings. I love working with brides and grooms, and, or really with brides. The grooms just kind of show up and sit there and nod. They're, you know, she'll say, and he'll just nod. Yes, that's right. And and even at the wedding, it's all about the bride and the groom just happens to be standing there next to her oftentimes. But oftentimes in a wedding preparation, the, the bride will say something like this. Pastor Brown, thank you for doing our wedding. But I want to tell you something. I have an uncle who's going to be at the wedding. And this uncle doesn't have a filter from what he says to his mouth. And I just want to forewarn you, there's no telling what he might say. Or she'll say, I have an aunt or a sibling or a cousin. And if I know the bride well enough, I'll say, you just have one? I mean, <laughs> most of us have a small busload of relatives that cause us to blush. Now, I say that because as we go into Christmas, many of you are going to be going to parties, going to family gatherings, and you're going to have that uncle or that cousin or that sibling that just pushes all of your buttons. And the question is, how do you walk with grace and how do you walk with love with difficult people? And life is difficult. Relationships are difficult. And so as we study this book of First Timothy uh, about how to deal with issues, we come to the part of chapter 2 and verse 8 and following where Paul is talking about order in the church and how the church can flourish and, and, and do well. And he says in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I want to come to you soon, but if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so he writes this to say, this is how you behave. This is how you worship. This is how you do things. This is how you take care of widows. This is how you choose leaders in the church. And so we come to this section, the start of this ch section, chapter 2, verse 8, we're just going to deal with one verse. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling or a disputatious spirit. And that's one prayer posture, lifting holy hands, standing is a prayer posture, kneeling, laying face down, all our prayer postures. He just chooses this one. You lift holy hands. Symbolically, I'm lifting my, my life unto the Lord. He says, that's the way I want you to pray with holy hands. Now, now but, but, but you don't just jump into this verse. 
you've got to read this block of truth. And, and in the first two chapters, Paul's been dealing with the wonder and the glory and the greatness of grace, salvation through Christ. He says, Timothy, I, I want you to stay in Ephesus to charge certain men not to teach false doctrine. And he says, Timothy, whatever we teach regarding the apostolic truth, verse 10, this is sound doctrine or life-giving doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And then Paul just rehearses the gospel. He says, I, I was a violent man, I was a persecutor, and I was a bully. I was the chief of sinners. He says, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the chief of sinners or the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he says later in verse 5 of chapter 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's the mediator between holy God and sinful man. He is the ransom who gave his life as a payment for my sin. Behold the glory of the gospel. And as he traces the gospel and rejoices in the gospel, he says, now, now that you're walking in the gospel, I want men everywhere at every place to raise holy hands, getting rid of anger and a disputatious or quarreling spirit. And in other words, we've got to continually walk in the gospel if we're going to not be a difficult person and love difficult people. Let me give you two quotes. The first is by Calvin, and he says this. Until we recognize that we owe everything to God, that, that men are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, they will never yield him willing service. No, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves sincerely to the Lord. He says, Calvin says, you've got to see the goodness of the Lord in the person of Christ. Jonathan Edwards, writing 200 years later, said this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. To go to heaven, fully to enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. Both these men are saying, you've got to understand the glorious goodness of God and, and walk in it. And so there's a connection between getting rid of anger and understanding grace. There's a connection between understanding grace and, and getting rid of our anger. And as I was thinking of this, I'm going to go to another text, Psalm 40. Which, which deals with the draining off of anger. How do you drain off anger as you walk in grace? Very key text here. The psalmist says, Answer me, O God, my righteousness. And then he says in verse 2, to his detractors, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? 
disappointing people, hard people. And then he says, be quiet and reflect. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry, or in your anger, do not sin. Do, do not let your anger go into sin, he says. And then he gives us, let me give you three keys to drain off anger. Number one, ponder, verse four, ponder, or meditate, or think deeply on your bed, or in your hearts upon your beds, and be silent. First of all, the psalmist says, if you're going to drain off anger, you've got to think. When you wake up at night, and you will, and you think about that person that did something against you, someone who's mocked you, someone who's belittled you, someone who's hurt you, and we all have those people. What do you do? He says, when you're laying awake on your bed at night, ponder, think. Go to verse 3. Know that the, the, God, the Lord God has set apart the godly for himself. Ponder, think, meditate upon these things. Glory in the gospel think. Number two, verse five, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There's no confession of faith called the 1689 Confession of Faith, chapter five, article five, talks about God's rule in our life. And he says this, that, that anything and everything that God does is for his glory, for my welfare, and for the good of his church. Everything God does is for his glory, for my welfare for the good of his church. They're tight. God's glory, my good. Do you trust the God who is your father? The passage that I always think about in this area is when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's knowledge. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Do not be anxious, he says. You're worth more than many, many sparrows. He says, you, you can trust this God. You can trust Abba, Father. Whatever happens as you walk in the Lord is from his hand. I was reading recently about this man, Morris Frank. Morris Frank grew up in, in a very wealthy home. He was horseback riding one day at the age of six, and the tree branch hit his eye, and he lost sight in his left eye. Then he went to Vanderbilt and was on the boxing team. And when he was a sophomore, he got hit in his right eye and lost sight in his right eye. So he became blind at age 20. Interestingly enough, his mother was blind. And so he had a keen interest in people without sight. And he was a person of means. He started asking questions and heard about a movement in Switzerland that had what they called seeing eye dogs. This is 1928. So Morris Frank goes to Switzerland, goes to the school, introduced to the leaders. They give him a dog. Buddy, there's the dog. And, and Buddy becomes his seen eye dog and the first seen eye dog in America. So he uses his connections to tell newspapermen about what he's done. It's an interesting story. Comes back by boat, comes to the gangplane in New York, walks down with Buddy, first time a seen eye dog has ever been in the U.S. And he says to them at this time, Buddy will lead me across West Avenue, which is right there in New York, multiple lanes of traffic, people going very fast. And the newspapermen didn't even do that. They're going, we're going to stand here. We're not going to walk across this without, without protection. And so, and so Buddy took him across. In fact, one newspaperman got hired a cab, did a U-turn so he could be on the other side of the street to take his picture when he completed the walk across. And he did. Became the first seen eye dog in America. 
Now, I thought, here's a man who trusted a well-trained dog. Trust. We went to Vermont last weekend and flew back on Tuesday. And as we were coming in from Burlington, Vermont to Washington, D.C., it got more and more cloudy. And about 30 miles outside of Washington, it was so thick you couldn't see the end of the airplane wing. And we start descending, and it's thick. And when you got on the ground, you couldn't see 10 yards in front of you. And I've got to tell you, as we were going down, I had this thought. I hope the air traffic controller is looking at the right monitor. You know? I had this thought. I hope the pilot knows how to fly by instruments instead of sight. Trust. At that point, I had no choice. You know, I was in, I was in there for the deal. So, so, but as you see, we landed and we did fine. Trust. Now, and I think about Morris Frank, Sinai Dog. Can I trust the God who is eternal, all wise, all holy, all good? Yeah. And so, if I'm to drain off anger in my spirit, the psalmist says, trust God. Trust. Trust this God. Trust that he's in control. Trust that he's the king. Trust that he watches over you. And then the third way to drain off anger in this text is to understand there's a unique and wonderful correlation between the plea of verse 6 and joy and peace. Listen, in verse 6 he says that there are many who will say to us, who will show us any good? These detractors. He said, who's going to show you any good? You're down on your luck. Who's going to show you any good? And here's the, the, the arrow prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. The psalmist says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us. Let us see the light of your face. And at church, I thought about 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Where, where Paul says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God who, who said, let light shine out of darkness has made his light shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or I thought of Hebrews chapter 1 that says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So, so he, he, he's, he's surrounded by detractors, difficult people who, who mock God and say, who's going to do you any good? And he just prays, God, show us, show us the light of your face. Now, hear me. I love this church. The vast majority of people I have a chance to work with encourage me. You do right. But I look at my life, and, and there's a difference between doing right and knowing the Lord and doing right and rejoicing in Jesus. I mean, there's... I, I want to cry out, God, I want to see you. I want to taste your goodness. I want to experience your power. And I want to do the right thing, but it's, it's, I want to taste your goodness. Here's my example. For example, let's say that you won a drawing to go to the Super Bowl for you and a friend. And you go to the Super Bowl, which I think will be really fun, by the way. And 
you say to your friend, this will be the only time we do this. Uh, I want to get there at least four or five hours early to see all the festivities and the free stuff and to just experience the, 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 the Super Bowl. And so you go there four or five hours early. You see the exhibits. You see all these people. You see all this. And then you say, I want to be in the stadium two hours early to see the players warm up, to see the TV crews, to see everything that's going on. And so you're there two hours early. You go in, and the, the usher glances at tickets, says, you're up there you know, H4 in the upper, upper deck right there. He said, well, fine. Okay. So you go to the upper deck and you're sitting there and you're high-fiving your friends and we are at the Super Bowl. And this is wonderful and this is good and, and you're just, man, you're just... And then about 30 minutes before the kickoff, somebody walks up and says, sir, I'm sorry, I, I think you're in my seat. And you go... Okay, wait a minute. So you ask the ushers... Are there duplicate tickets here? And I says, oh, 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 I'm sorry. I misread your ticket. He says, you're not in section double Z, H4, the top of the stadium. You're in Skybox, H4. And so I've never been to a Skybox. Some of you have. The Skybox, you go to the Skybox, and there are plasma TVs. It's climate controlled. There's a taco bar, a pizza bar, a drink bar, a fruit bar, a salad bar. You're in a leather chair on the 50-yard line, and you say, now this is watching the Super Bowl. See, the people who know Jesus at the upper level, they're, they're in the family. They're in the family. But the people in the skybox are tasting Jesus. I want to taste Christ. The Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We are far too easily pleased. So I, I love this prayer. He says, Lord, let us see the light of your face. And then, church, see, there's, there's a correlation between that and, and, and joy and peace. Verse 7 says, as you show us the light of your face, you have filled our hearts with more joy than they have, the detractors have, when their grain and new wine abound. Their stock portfolio jumps 50% in one year. We have more joy than they do because we have seen the glory of Jesus. Verse 8, in peace, see joy, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, and for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I was with a couple of men the other day, younger believer, young man, looking at an older man who's recently made a strong commitment to the Lord a few years ago. And, and he says, what is the difference? He's a businessman. What is the difference between your life now as compared to a few years ago? And he said, well, one difference, I can sleep at night with peace. I thought, yeah, that's Psalm 4. Many night I go to sleep and I'll quote Psalm 127 that says, he gives to his beloved sleep. You lay down and you sleep because God is God and God is Abba Father and he's in control and he does everything for his glory and you're good and you trust him in that. And, and you've seen the light of his face. Number two, very quickly, there's a connection between grace, understanding grace, and not being a disputatious person. See, the problem in Ephesus that Timothy was supposed to straighten out in part was false teaching. The, the false teachers, some of them were super legalistic. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says they have a, a, a seared conscience. They can't think well, he says. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, so the, the, their problem is they're just legalistic. They've added on to Scripture 
They've added all these rules and regulations, and now they forbid marriage, they forbid sexual intimacy, and you can't eat certain foods. And Paul says, a pox upon that house. And then there's another group of false teachers. I think it's a different group. Maybe the same group. But chapter 6, verse 3 says that they don't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspensions and constant friction. They're just quarrelsome. They're disputatious. Another description of the false teachers, chapter 1, verse 3. He says they, they give themselves to myths and endless genealogies, verse 4, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So they're speculative. They don't stay in the truth. They want to say, well, what if? And well, well really, the, what the apostles gave us, that may be okay, but let's talk about something else. And see, and so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, stay here. Stay in the gospel. You know, it, it's sometimes fun to play the what if game if you're with children. I went to one of our Panmunjom Christian Academy kindergarten classes a few weeks ago. I sang with them and sat in a circle with them afterwards, and they asked me questions. And you know, kindergarten's going to ask really good questions. One question. One question is, was this Pastor Brown? If Jesus was totally God and totally man, how can that be? I said, next question. <laughs> That's a good question. Pastor Brown, what happens when you're when you die? Where does your where does your what happens to your body? Where does your, where does your soul go? What's heaven like? And then when you're with young kids, they'll ask questions that are just funny, speculative questions. If my father sprouted wings and was flying around the house, could I fly with him? If an angel sat upon our building and it collapsed, would we be okay? I said, well, really? So it's funny when you're kindergartners, but when you're old, it's not funny. We just confessed a while ago a creed that says Jesus is very God of very God. He is one with the Father. There was never a time when Jesus was not in the happy land of the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, world without end. We affirm that. We glory in that. Jesus was a man, and he was sinless. He was born supernaturally of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, and he rose from the dead supernaturally with a resurrection body, and he appeared to 500-plus men, and then he supernaturally ascended to heaven, and he lives now praying for his people, and one day he'll come back to take us home. That's the gospel of Jesus. Now, but, but as people have looked at that through the centuries, they've really dealt with this in the early church. They said, well, if, if, if Jesus was born of a virgin and he was sinless, then was Mary sinless to secure the sinlessness of Jesus? And of course, my answer is the Bible doesn't address that. The Bible just says Jesus was born of a virgin, born sinless. And so they struggled that through the year until 1854, the, the Pope, I'm not being critical of the Catholic Church, they're wonderful people in many ways, but the, the Pope declared from St. Peter's throne, we call that ex cathedra, that is a matter of church dogma from this day forward, he said, 
every good Catholic must believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which means that Mary was, was sinless. So that, that's church dogma now, 1854. Now, of course, the next question is, well, what about Mary's mama? And Mary's mama's mama. And Mary's mama's mama, 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 mama. See, so, so, and I just, people say, well, what do you think about it? I said, well, the Bible doesn't teach that. So well, we just don't go there. See, don't be speculative. Because speculation produces quarrels and dissension. Be centered on the reality and the greatness and the glory of Jesus. And so there's, there's another part of, of speculation. You become, he says here, become arrogant and proud and fault-finding. Then I just wrote down, if, you, if, if I am narrow and fault-finding and score-keeping, then I'm not walking in grace. If I'm not forgiving and tender and teachable, I'm not walking. I don't get the gospel of grace as I should. When you meet believers who, who love the gospel and they're speaking the truth and they love the truth and they're teachable and they're humble, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're, 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 for, they're, they're not fault-finding, they're not score-keeping, they're easy to live with, they're easy to worship with, they're easy to work with. So there's, there's a direct correlation between getting the gospel of grace and avoiding the spirit of disputation. Number three, very quickly, we are to pray with lifting holy hands. As we ponder, as we trust, and as we call out to God for fresh mercy, we lift holy hands without anger or disputation because we deal with God. We, we are people who desire to be obedient because we've been touched by grace. I was thinking about that and read Psalm 7 recently. In Psalm 7, the psalmist says this, O Lord, you are my refuge, you are my deliverer. And he says once again, you have delivered me. And then he says in verse 3, this is strong stuff. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Wow. You see, if you're a Christ follower and you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and if you believe in the Holy Spirit, then you believe that you deal with God. That God is our Father who disciplines those whom he loves. And, and, and so we, we say, God, you're my deliverer, you're my refuge, you're my deliverer. He says, and God, if I'm living in known unrepentant sin, if I'm taking advantage of people, if I'm defrauding men and women, then God, deal with me. Deal with me. Holy hands. We deal with God. We lift holy hands without anger. We've dealt with our anger at the cross. Anger doesn't rule us. Holy hands. We keep the gospel center. We're not a disputatious person who goes off tangentially in every different way and causes heartache. We are centered on Jesus. Let there be order in the church, in our homes, in our lives. Amen. Well, let's close. Please stand and I'll close this prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the ability to open the Bible and to study it. And we thank you that we don't have to be speculative, but we can walk in the faith that's once and for all been delivered to the saints. And so, God, keep us um, always incredibly mindful of grace. 
and the forgiveness of sins. Let us say to the Apostle Paul that we are the foremost of sinners, but God has worked in our lives as, as, as an example that the, that the living God is patient with, with broken people like us. So thank you for that. And I, I pray that as we live in that, that we wouldn't deal with our anger at the cross, that we would not be people who are quarrelsome and disputatious and, and, and strain and gnats and swallow camels, like you said to the Pharisees. Lord, just help us to be central, centered on Christ and be kind and loving and filled with the Spirit. Help us to be concerned about our neighbor's welfare and people around the world. Just, Lord, do that in our lives. We, we pray for this day. We thank you for the, the opportunity we have tonight of, of, of hearing the message of Christmas sung and played. And may we ponder that. And may you bless those who are performing tonight. And may you energize them to sing and to play with great grace and joy because we can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. So thank you for this day. Blessed be your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much.